at Olipop, we did a bunch of influencer stuff and certain influencers, their fan base had a much more integrated relationship with them and they had double the LTV, like literally double. So it's super important to look at source and discount. Um, and obviously, like you said, product. Oh my God. I'm, I'm in my, uh, disassociating phase this week. It, it's black Friday. Um, it's happening. It's we're recording on a Monday. We usually record on a Wednesday. Welcome to episode five. Welcome to the chaos. Um, Cody, thoughts? Black Friday, Cyber Monday. How are you feeling? Yeah, I have no idea why we're deciding to record this podcast now because our laundry list of things to do, stuff going on, stuff breaking is, you know, piling up. But I also think it'll be a good, you know, glimpse into, you know, I think one of the things that we try to do is kind of actually talk about, you know, what's going on in our lives and our business as we're actually operating it. So hopefully we can give a little bit of a glimpse. Um, I'm pumped. I'm exhausted. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm pumped and exhausted, equal parts. So we didn't really think of any ideas. We didn't really have time to research. So what we did is uh, go to Twitter and we asked you guys for what you wanted to see. So I was thinking we were just going to do some rapid fire, just some Q&A. We've got a list of probably 10 to 15 questions. Let's see what we can get through and just uh, go from there. A lot of good ones. Yeah, I'm. I'm just like, just to kind of give you an idea so give the folks an idea we launched two of our kits um aspen of miami on wednesday and then launched an eyeshadow palette and it was supposed to take us <laughs> through the end of the year um a couple of days we launched them about a day a week before black friday <laughs> we are pretty much out we have about 1700 more that they're kidding right now they're just waiting on like one component of them we're going to relaunch them on black friday with our normal Black Friday offer and probably expect them to go that day. It's crazy. I I mean, we all kind of thought this would take us for at least a couple of weeks. Um, I Obviously, good problems to have, but it's it's always... And we'll, we'll get into this. Uh, somebody asked a question about our kits. Um, Ari from, from Sharma Brands asked about our kits, our kits, and we'll get into it. But it's just seeing, seeing this velocity and excitement from customers. We chatted about this a couple episodes ago. Um, actually last season about our Facebook group, we just passed 5.3 thousand Sydney on, on the CX side of things has been crushing it. And it's just like the, the environment there kind of gives you a little bit of an idea as to what to expect and the excitement around these kits. We did a, what else? We did an in-store, um, live, yeah, like the, I the hear flagship about live it was a blast. Everyone from the community was in it's it's exciting, exhausting. It's going to be a week. Exciting. So yeah, um, I was I was worried about it. I don't know if we've even shared publicly. I, I don't really want to before Black Friday. Actually, this will come out after Black Friday, so we can mm-hmm. kind of share what we're doing. You know, we don't like to do discounts, so we are doing, uh, you know, some exclusive offers. We have a kit set coming out, which is our mini Miracle Bomb. So Miracle Bomb is our bestseller. People will be able to choose, you know, between four of them. Last year, you know, we didn't really have the inventory. We didn't really plan for it. We sold out within a day. Uh, you know, we were projected to not sell out this year. We, we've got some some good inventory, but I think we will. Um, I'm going to go pretty aggressive on the spend as well. Started using cost caps on a one-day click for this with a really high budget. So we're only spending if we're efficient. And uh, we've been blowing through our budget on that, which is kind of part of the problem. But uh, I'm, I'm super <laughs> excited to to see how it goes, and and hopefully we can have a record day. Uh, hopefully we can have our, our best day yet. The, the the we you asked was it last week? Um, 
like what do people have in mind if we if we hit a record? And we have a pretty a pretty scrappy team. We had a whole bunch of people saying they want pizza. So, you know, a pizza it's party, cheap. Joanne. Cheap. Get yeah, get Joanne some ranch. Yeah. Are you a by the way, are you a Truff fan? I definitely can mess with some Truff. I, I, I would like to try their uh ranch. Oh yeah, the the Hidden Valley one. So I, I've actually never tried it. My wife Pyle loves it, and I don't know. It's just like always. I'm not a big truffle guy, so I tried it the other day on eggs. It's fucking fire. It's, it's good, delicious. right? I they sent me a while back. They sent me a couple of hol- like a, ho- a couple of gift boxes. Yeah, and I've been gifting them left and right, and people oh, are obsessed. I actually with it. got my Pyle's uh, my wife's um, birthday's in a few weeks, so I got her like the starter pack or whatever it is, like. $170 worth of it. So like got like one oh, of everything Lord. pretty much. Yeah. It's like a very self-serving gift. I'm, I'm the king of that. <laughs> Down to Chat is brought to you by Peel Insights. I'm a big retention guy. Cody knows that. Big growth guy. And just wanted to quickly talk about some of the ways that we use Peel on the LTV side. So Cody, do you want to chat about cohorts? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, LTV, even on a, a non-retention side, is pretty much the foundation of everything we do. So we're always looking at lifetime value, which is kind of the, you know, the value that we get from either a customer or a cohort. And Peel has so many great ways to visualize it. But a cohort is essentially a fancy word for a group of customers. So most commonly, we look at, um, you know, cohorts by month. So all of the customers that we've acquired in any given month, and then how are they, how are we retaining them and how is their value progressing over time? And the amazing thing with Peel is you can segment that by pretty much anything you'd want to. So Eli and I are looking at that all of the time in terms of, you know, different customer journeys, different products, different messages. So we can really understand what types of customers are, you know, the best for us to focus on, both on an acquisition standpoint, as well as what are, what retention practices are actually working for us. Eli, uh, what what are some of the kind of the ways that you use LTV and some things you, you like to look at yourself? Yeah so, yeah, so some great examples, one that we shared last time about shade matching, but the other kind of super interesting one that I guess is both relevant on the growth side and on the retention side is we talk about mascara being a very high LTV purchase. Customers that hop in on a mascara end up spending almost double of what, you know, some of the other products that people come in on. So both from a growth perspective, you know, Cody thinking about the ads, as well as me from an experience perspective as to like, what products should we be pushing to our customers? What products should we optimizing? Should we be optimizing for an email? SMS, et cetera, that's something we learned entirely from people. Yeah, there's, yeah there's, there's really so much. I mean, pretty much any you know decision that you're making, any any marketing initiative, what, whether it comes down to understanding how is a TikTok versus Facebook customer, you know, what's the value that you get both of them? And do you have to set different CPA targets for them? Uh, I use it to kind of do forecasting for the, the coming year by kind of uh, predicting and forecasting, you know, revenue that we're going to get from repeat customers, which is, you know, the most stable kind of cohort that you can get. That's all done through Peel. It's it's pretty much everything. So it's a, it's definitely a tool and and some analysis that we wouldn't be able to run our business without. And some, and some things that we'll talk about in future episodes, like how do you increase LTV? Uh, at the moment, we're covering kind of like how to check out LTV and how to see what cohorts are doing better than others, but obviously improving CX, loyalty programs, referrals, communications with customers, all that fun stuff we'll talk, we'll talk about over the next couple episodes. But for now, if you'd like to check out PL, it's plinsights.com and tell them we sent you. All right. Should we get into it? Should we answer some questions? Yeah, let's hop into it. I'm going to, I'm going to toss them at you. Um, some of them are definitely very much Cody questions. Some of them are a little bit of a little bit Cody, a little bit Eli, but we'll, we'll jump into it and 
Yeah. I, I imagine some we won't have great answers for, but that's part of it. So um, first it's question. Certainly part of it. Nick the Goat Sharma, um, best CRO learnings on JRB site, um, optimizations, conversions. Yeah, that's a super good question. Um, you know, we, we haven't done as much as maybe somebody might expect. We also haven't done it... Um, quote unquote properly we've done i think there's two ways to do uh you know site changes you either go very iterative one thing at a time a b test everything and google optimize or you see brands that just do a site redesign and have no idea i feel like we've done a little bit of both um kind of trying to bring qualitative and quantitative you know our site was always pretty looking but the ux was was pretty bad the home page was shit this is kind of before I came in, um, not to you know pat myself on the back too much, but the homepage was shit. The collections pages, I just didn't, I didn't love. We had these like, everything was, was full bleed. We had these giant blocks of stuff like that. The PDPs were, were atrocious. So, you know, wanted wanted to just make them, make the UX better, make everything more shoppable. Um, biggest, you know, learning on the PDP is really just making it as easy as possible to get the information across that we wanted to get to people, specifically how to find their shade. When we redid them, that was really the main focus. So we went with, we had this kind of carousel design before that people had to, uh, you know, scroll through and, and look at all their images. And I know that like, you know, Nick and, and Hooks are a huge fan of using heat maps and you should absolutely be using them. So a few of the big learnings when we were using heat maps is like people didn't even know that we had all these images and carousels. And we have this beautiful imagery and people just didn't see it because our, uh, you know, that little like arrow on the side, mm-hmm. it was hard to find, especially on, on mobile. So we went with, you know, one of these designs where it's like, our strength is not our copy as a brand. Our, our strength is our, our our visuals. So we have like a grid of like six images on the left-hand side with all of our copy on the right. You don't even see the product description until you open it up. Um, I, I would be interested to, to test that. But yeah, you don't even see it. So we really went with, you know, how do we make it visual because we sell such a visual thing? And how do we make it, you know, as easy as possible for people to find their shade? Um, that's a big one. Uh, adding, you know, the quiz to there, we've definitely seen increases conversion rates. So adding a quiz to the PDP, um, adding video to a PDP, you know, helps a little bit, but not a big one. Um, adding, we, we did this other thing where we have a sticky header. So now when somebody scrolls down on the PDP, the, the top nav goes away and it becomes a sticky header where they can pick their shade and add to cart from there that, uh, boosted conversion rate pretty nicely. Um, you know, I, I think the biggest just general learning, if, if I'm trying to think about it, is some of the counterintuitive uh, CRO re- recommendations actually helped us adding more friction. So we don't do quick shopping. We took all of that away. Sending people to a PDP, lengthening the funnel has actually increased our conversion rate, increased our revenue per recipient. So that's a pretty big one. We did an, an uh, audit from from audit of course and that was super helpful that a lot of the changes we made were based on their recommendations so so definitely shout out to them it's i know that wasn't like inter- one thing yeah no it's a couple I'm of good rambling. things it's interesting how uh how the quick shop we saw that at olifab as well that quick shop was not actually was not actually effective i think people want more information and want you know in our in our world there it was yeah. like the nutritional value and the the calories and the sugar and all that they want to read that before they just kind of quick add to cart, um, definitely for a first time customer, right? Um, the other interesting piece around counterintuitive is important. I think, especially us, like 
D to C e-commerce people that we spend 12 hours a day in front of a screen. Like we're just looking for very unique things, but an, an average shopper like my, like my mom would not necessarily kind of go in and understand what on earth is going on. I think yeah. Nick has spoken about this in, in one of his podcasts um, or, or the newsletter is like, you know, find a, a drunk friend or get your friend drunk and have them go through your, your, your website and, and kind of wa- tell them to walk through what they're seeing. And I think you'd be shocked. Like I've seen, I've seen a lot of sites that I'm like, this is visually really cool and mm-hmm. exciting, but I have no idea where I'm going and I definitely would jump. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. I actually sent one of our when we were redoing our collections pages to Bailey and and Aria at Sharma Brands, and I think that they were having a few drinks and looked at it and kind of gave, <laughs> gave it the, the go ahead, which I was happy about. Um, yeah, I, I think that's definitely one. I think we have more kind of data on landing pages actually, but definitely there. Like we've tested allowing people to check out on the PDP or on the on the landing page, and I would have thought that it increased conversion rate but decreased average order value. Um, it did decrease average order value, but it actually also decreased conversion rate. Hmm. So that was another one of those kind of counterintuitive ones. You know, I think could we have done a better job educating people on how to overcome their main objections on the landing page? Absolutely. But with the the current format that we had, I think again we just needed to send people to uh, you know the PDP or quiz so that they could get more education. And sometimes you know for us lengthening that funnel works. So that's that's a counterintuitive one. Hmm. Interesting. I think the the kind of uh, next question is is somewhat of a follow up um, from Jay Bell. Uh, she asked, "Do you need a developer to really optimize your site for for conversion, or could you bootstrap it with the right tools and some effort?" Yeah, I, I think you want. I mean, there are definitely tools out there. You can do a lot in Google Optimize yourself, but you definitely cannot do everything without a developer. You know, on landing pages, tools like Replo are amazing. Uh, you can. Not yet, but soon you'll be able to do a full site in there, kind of like a Webflow type thing. Um, you know, if you're just getting started, you know, I recommend just just buying a, a pretty standard off the shelf, uh, you know, Dawn, so uh, uh, you know, online store 2.0 theme, and then you know, playing around with it yourself. But but don't go crazy. You don't have to do a custom theme from scratch if you're just getting started. Um, but yeah, it, it probably helps to have a, a developer once you get to a certain point. This uh, next question from Luca felt like they were reading our minds. Um, <laughs> important lessons learned from sales forecasting and managing demand X ad budgets. Fuck. Um, <laughs> lessons. Um, no, it's hard. We're learning I mean, those lessons now. It's, it's, it's really hard. There's literally no one who is perfect at it. There's no one methodology. I think it's really, I think it's really difficult. Uh, it's it's super hard. Um, you know, I think you have to take the best guess. I think you're going to have, uh, you know, different methodologies to do it. I think an ops team and a demand planner are going to have a different methodology uh, than a, a marketing team. And so I think it's really important to work closely together to shorten the feedback loop. I think that's one of our biggest challenges right now is the feedback loop is too long. You know, there's different methodology. And, and set up, uh, you know, a culture and a system of, of sharing that data as quickly as possible. And, you know, for example, if you're crushing it on acquisition, that's going to that's going to need to impact your forecast for the following month, month based on your retention curves, you know, and vice versa. Um, and, you know, especially if you're trying to push it really hard, as we have been, like I mentioned, doing these cost caps, like, 
Yeah, it's it's uh it's 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 tricky. Um, so I, I think best lessons are are get a good model. Like I'm actually getting uh you know consulting. Uh, somebody's kind of helping me out because I don't have that much experience here, and I'm just trying to learn it. But definitely get a good model. Start doing a forecast versus actuals. Learn where you're wrong and off, and just try to kind of refine that model over time. But then just make sure you're communicating with your team super quickly, and then you know. To, to decide what you can live with, if you can live with over or under forecasting. I mean, I think right yeah. now, you know, most brands have over forecasted uh, based on kind of COVID, you know, pandemic demand. And that can kind of put you out of business. Rarely will under forecasting put you out of business. It just makes you feel like you missed a lot of opportunities. But, you know, at the end of the day, you, you can live with that mistake. You can't live with the first. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Uh, iterating on on kind of the forecast that you have and consistently looking at, at forecasts versus actuals is a good one. Um, and then also think about macro trends. I think we spoke about this last episode. Absolutely. Around AI. AI. Exactly. So like if, if, if it's a moment for Miracle Balm and, and people are obsessed with a glowy look, it'll probably massively impact their sales, whether or not last month was popping. So I think it's, it's important to kind of look Absolutely. more holistically than just, just the data. And then sharing that data and understanding you know, like obviously you know, your your unit sales and your demand is going to change based on your spend and stuff like that. But what Eli and I have noticed is like, uh, you know, CX tickets or some loose correlation between spend and forecast. So just making sure every you know stakeholder in your team has that data, so Eli can plan how many CX people he's going to need, uh, you know, available and and plan out hiring. I think is super important. The the CX piece is interesting because throughout my career, I've seen most of the time it's correlated with the volume you sell. I think with Jones Road, it's super interesting. And it took me a good month and a half to realize that a lot of the volume we're getting is pre-purchased because of our, our shade matching and questions mm-hmm. that consumers have. So because a lot of it is pre-purchase, it like Cody's saying, it, it the large impact is, is the increase in spend because it's new customers, it's new folks being introduced to the brand and we need to explain things to them versus people saying, where's my order? So I think that's interesting. And, and for any kind of CX person or, or anyone that's managing a CX uh, function or a team, it's important to kind of look at, look at the data to understand um, what's actually pushing the tickets. Is it, you know, is it noise or is it orders? Is it shipping delays, et cetera? But um, yeah. Next up, um, Ari from Sharma Brands um, had a question. Before I jump into the question, uh, she dropped a newsletter last night and had a wish list. And it's she dropped like her holiday wish list that she shared with her husband. And I thought it was super cool to see the La Mer cream and all the other bougie stuff, but also Jones Road brushes. Oh, what? Yeah, it's on the wish list. So Ooh, I actually, I don't know if she's listening or not. I actually was told that I owe her a box anyways. I think I was going to kind of send some stuff to her and Bailey. You know, I remember when Bailey wanted the mascara. So I, yeah. it's, it's on the list. So um, hopefully we can make that wish list come true. So the Eli can deliver were, it. Eli's going to dress up as Santa and uh, I know. deliver it. <laughs> it was like a whole bunch of bougie, really bougie stuff like the Baccarat Rouge 540 and the Le Mer Cream and the Jones Road brushes. So I guess, but question from Ari, um, you're kidding slash set philosophy. How do you decide what SKUs are best sold as sets Aspen holiday type versus single SKUs, like all brushes being sold separately? Yeah, I'll, I'll start and then definitely feel free to chime in. Our, 
I think we do kind of kitting, you know, sets for really two different reasons. So we have two different things on our websites. We call kits. Uh, those are kind of things that come in bags. Those are just one skew, so you can't choose choose your shade. Um, and then we also have sets, which are I think we talked about it last week, but you know, these are uh, things where people can pick their shades. Now there's endless combinations of things. So those are actually fulfilled as individual pro- uh, products with just like a line item added for you know a script added for a discount. Um, but I think we look at it a few ways. Number one is we don't like discounting. So, you know, we, we want to be able to, during exciting times like holiday, Black Friday, Memorial Day, do fun things that are going to get people excited and get people to purchase again when you know, maybe they wouldn't have. So we, we try to be really thoughtful about it. Obviously, there's a big editorial component of, you know, this is a look that, that Bobby wants to promote that's seasonal. But also what's something that we can put in there that's going to make people super excited to buy. And so we were trying to go, you know, get some urgency and scarcity going. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll put a, you know, a mini uh, Miracle Bomb in there. Often we'll pull forward a shade. Um, so we'll put a shade in there that people haven't seen before that we're planning to, to, to launch in a full size in a few months. Um, that's a strong one. And then occasionally we'll pull forward a, a single skew, so a single shade of a product that we're launching in a few months. Um, that's that's kind of like it. We, we've done some stuff with, with brushes, but I guess we haven't really thought about it too much um no no reason not to really any thoughts yeah i mean i think there's always almost always like a person or a theme behind it so it's it's aspirational right it's like the bobby kit 2.0 or the whatever kit like there's always a kind of like a person or an aspiration but also um like you said there's something exciting like a reason to hop in whether it's a new shade um, or a completely new product and and there's also a look right it's a full it's a get the look moment so it's like people can look at that and be like this is the look I'm aspiring for um, and it kind of makes sense versus just selling a whole bunch of brushes to increase the AOV but it's not necessarily as exciting as a full look um, I think as far as brand like we're also less of like buy 10 brushes, get a discount versus yeah. um, ways to kind of re-engage customers from a Yeah, we barely even really mention well. the discount on it. Like okay, like yeah. for Black Friday, we'll put a strike through. We pretty much don't even. I, I'm curious, do you think customers calculate in their in their heads like, oh, this kit is discounted off full price or not? I don't think so. Um, mm-hmm. I think that they might realize that there's a slight discount just because the pricing is usually, it's not like 105, it's like 96.50 or like $96. So yeah. I think people realize that because it's not an even number, it's probably discounted. But I think the, the reason why people generally hop into a kit, like our, our Bobby kit 2.0 was supposed to last months, lasted like a week or two. Um, it's aspirational, right? It's like, it's, it's a, it's a brand that's built by Bobby and this is, these are the things that she loves that are in her bag right now. And I think that's exciting. Um, almost every kit we've done has been like one of our models or one of our, mm. one of our people in our corner. And yeah. We'll probably do more of that. Exciting. I think we're going to do more of that this year, you know, influencer kits, content creator, uh, celebrity kits. Um, especially we might attach some type, you know, you can attach some type of, you know, philanthropy component to it as well would be interesting. Um, occasionally I think we might do one or two where we're really not putting any new products in it, but it's just kind of come in a bag that is exclusive mm-hmm. and might be made with somebody else kind of partnership in mind. So I think there's a lot of ways to get creative about it. You just have to be really strategic. And am I, is this a retention play? Is this an earned media play? Is this an AOV play? You know, is this an acquisition play? I think for a while these were mainly retention things, but we're finding that if we, we pair them properly, they're really strong, um, really strong acquisition as well. 
Yeah, acquisition, and then obviously LTV. Like we spoke about this last episode, and Cody mentioned it on a, on a meeting today. But we we can I feel like we consistently bring it up. But the people that hop in on a on a kit of four or five items, there's a very high chance that they like something in there. I think it would be really cool to do like you know, when you think about an acquisition play or an LTV play, I think a brand play would be super cool as well if we can align with kind of like legendary, whether it's like a legendary luggage brand and have like a bag collab with them. Yeah. Um, but the bag piece is super interesting. Like we've done the Tyvek bag, like gift with purchase and that crash. So I think it's being thoughtful as to kind of like you're, what you're saying, like what's the what's the end goal? We have something in the works. I'm not, I can't share on here, but I'll tell you privately, we have something in the works for a bag that would be really cool. I love that. I think the bags in general are just, they're on brand. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they feel good. They look good. And I think people are excited because they're rare, right? They come and go. You can almost mm-hmm. never buy them separately. And, and every single time we do any sort of like gift with purchase or kit with them, people, people love them. People love bags. It's actually, that's crazy. When we first started doing gift with purchases with bags and our bags probably cost us like 80 cents for some of them, like People go crazy about them and love them, and, and it almost start collecting them and kind of want them all, which is which is crazy. Yeah, a lot of a lot of different sizes, different different looks, um, mm. and yeah, we have another another bag coming out on Black Friday. Well, this episode will be live, but we had an Aspen one and a Miami one, and I think it's always really really thoughtfully designed as well. Like it's it's it feels extremely on brand. I think as a as a creative team, like this team crushes it and everything just feels really really it feels right which is exciting um what's next zach from homestead this is a question that we kind of have tackled in the past a little bit but um you know what's the one channel you haven't invested in much this year you plan to invest in a lot more next year and how do you plan to stand out in that channels whether it's tv streaming direct mail youtube ads etc how do we plan on standing out yeah, it's a really good question because we've definitely thought about it a lot. It's so hard to pick one because there are so many. So I'll say we definitely are going to test TV. We are probably going to really ramp up YouTube spend. We're testing direct mail right now. Podcasts, I'd put probably like mid-tier. You know, we just tested our first newsletter. It's it's a little too early. If I also don't know. I kind of need to figure out like the... So what what we see saw was essentially a below a one return on ad spend for like a last click basis. Um, most channels that I have, if anyone's listening and has any feedback, just hit me up and let me know. Most channels that you know that we look at, like I, I have a model and I know how much of the value is captured on a last click versus kind of like different periods, and I don't really know that for newsletter. Um, so I would say I would say solid, but not something that I'd be like, oh my god, this crushed for us. I need a little bit more data to to look at that, if that makes sense. Sounds like you need like an attribution type of uh, I know. You know what the, the problem was? And I was not that happy about this. So that's yeah. what we were planning to do. We were planning to, to use North Beam and do all our UTMs and stuff like that and be able to really track some of it, you know, and also look at LTV and, and forecasted LTV and stuff like that. They and and they were no, they were like, we're putting like this is we're using an affiliate link. I was like, you never put that like in the contract. I was fucking pissed. And it's someone we have like a relationship with, so I, like it was kind of hard to back out. But I was like, no, like if you quote me a fee and it's yeah, fifteen k, don't you know? I don't want to find out later that it's fifteen k plus affiliate commissions. I think that's pretty sketch, to be honest. I think yeah, usually, I so usually too. it's. I mean, in in my tiny universe, um, I've always seen that that has to be like written out in the contract. Um, yeah. Even just like in the newsletter world, right? It's like if somebody sponsors it, it's it's pretty clear whether or not I can use an affiliate link versus not. Um, I think that's 
yeah, I totally like, adds agree. A, adds a good couple yeah. of percent points. I, I totally agree. And then, uh, you know, I cared about that. I cared more about like how it fucked up our tracking. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I think, you know, if I had to pick one, because I know he's not asking about the different channels, if I had to pick one channel, um, oh, fuck, this is so hard. I think YouTube will take the biggest spend from us. It would be between YouTube and TV. I just see it as a natural progression of where we've been, which is, you know, video content, uh, storytelling and, and educational stuff. Um, what's going to make us stand out? I mean, Bobby I Brown, our, right? Yeah. It's a okay, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. It, it is, but also like our style, like definitely putting Bobby in it, but also making sure it delivers value rather than mm-hmm. just buy my shit. This is why I started mm-hmm. by my shit, but making sure we're telling a, a story that people resonate with as well as educating people in it. So that mm. they actually kind of feel some positive association to it. You know who does, um, and I th- I'm pretty sure I'm like a broken record here that I've brought this up in the past, but Mudwater does like seven minute YouTube pre-roll ads and they're oh, just they? like extremely, extremely storytelly. Um, if that's a word, it just feels compelling and exciting to watch. And it's, it can be like his founding story as to why he's selling mud on the internet, uh, branded <laughs> as Chai. Um, but it's just, it's interesting to see brands that, that took YouTube and didn't just use it as like a 15 second kind of like Instagram ad function, but are actually using it ironically, almost organically, but paying for placement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think how I I haven't seen those ads, but I think it makes sense. I've just seen their TikTok ads. I have YouTube premium premium on, which I actually, that's the only thing I don't like about it is I don't get to see the ads. Um, the ads have gotten longer and longer. You, you, you'd hate it. Um, Or you'd love it, honestly. Now, now I'm getting like two ads and they're like 15 seconds each and some of them you can't skip. Yeah. So that's our, that's our plan. In this episode, we're talking a ton about increasing AOV. And one of the ways that brands increase AOV is with a mobile app from Tapcart. To actually convert shoppers, brands need a seamless UX experience and a mobile-first mindset. 47% of people expect your page to load in two seconds. 40% of users will bounce if your page doesn't load in three. You lose 7% of conversions for every second your page load lags. A mobile app has a better customer experience, which leads to higher AOV and more brand loyalty. With features like instant page loading, one-click checkout, saved account info, native integrations, and push notifications, shoppers spend more time on the app, add more to their cart, and actually check out. With Tapcart, you can instantly turn your Shopify store into an epic mobile app with no coding required and a power, a low upkeep revenue stream designed to convert mobile shoppers. Relevant case studies. Reason Clothing launched an app for BFCM with Tapcart. The results? $120 higher AOV in-app for desktop plus mobile web, seven and a half times higher orders per session, 42% increase in Black Friday, Cyber Monday revenue, and 2.4 times more orders in-app versus desktop and mobile app. Art of T tripled their conversion rate with a mobile app, 4.6 times higher or average order value per session than mobile web. Here's what you can expect on average with a tap cart mobile app metrics wise. A 40% increase on average in conversion rate versus website, a 2.4 times increase in LTV on the app, and a 2.2 times revenue per session on app. If you want to check out Tapcart, you can go to tapcart.com forward slash down to chat. Tapcart.com forward slash down to chat. Next question. I'll, I'll ask this and let you answer it. What are the biggest two to three things that you think direct consumer founders fail on? Um, this is 
This is an emotional one because I, I think I've seen quite a few failures um, and almost all of them are quite similar um, from, from my perspective as an employee. I think it gets to their head. I think they have a large focus on ego and feeling versus getting down low and kind of riding it out. Um, we've seen brands massively overhire. That's that's in, in, in the macro yeah. headwinds. I think that's a large problem. Uh, massively overhiring because they're comparing themselves to competitors in this space that have a 70 person team and then having to let those people go. Um, the two to three things that founders fail on, I think bad hiring. I think it's really, really difficult to hire at a startup. So I think if you, if you fail badly, that's a tough one. And then spending a ton of money on marketing a shitty product with, without considering profitability on first order. I think mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's a non-negotiable unless you're, unless you're an, athletic greens and you have 10 years of history and you can prove that your LTV is a thousand dollars outspending first order profitability is, is for a D to C brand is I think the kind of non-negotiable. Um, those are two things or three things. What do you think? That's totally fair. I think, you know, it would be two things that are kind of lined up together. It would be not making a differentiated product, you know, just another one of those same things that you think, the market needs, but the market doesn't totally need. So, you're, you know, you're not validating it and you're, you know, I, I see this a lot, especially, you know, with like SaaS and I'm sure it happens mm -hmm. in direct consumer, but like, you know, I'll talk to somebody who's a founder of a SaaS company. And, you know, one thing that people in SaaS will do is they'll, they'll do a ton of, you know, market customer research and they'll ask questions and I'll give them my feedback and I try to be as honest as possible. Cause I don't think just being like, again, I do it in, in a way where, you know, I'm trying to be helpful and nice and, and, you know, try to try to say it nicely. If that makes sense. I'm not trying to be a dick about it, but sometimes people don't want to hear the feedback and they just kind of either get defensive or they're, they're just like, you can just tell they just like drink their own Kool-Aid so much that they're unwilling to hear anything negative. And I think people have so much passion and excitement for what, for what they're, bringing to market that they don't necessarily hear a lot of those negative things. Um, and I know as somebody who's, you know, started companies before, like I wish I knew some of those going into it. Cause I think an entrepreneur can be so excited about what they have coming out that they think no matter what they can just succeed with it. And the reality is a lot of your success is, is chosen when you create your product and, you know, no, especially now when things are really hard, no amount of great marketing or even capital behind it can, can, you know, guarantee success. So that's number one. It's like you, you, you have to be able to pick your product and market very well. Yeah. Wow. Um, is it's so interesting how, I mean, almost every founder is high on their own supply, right? It's got, you yeah. have to convince yourself that what you're doing every single day, waking up, grinding, or grind set mindset, um, you know, convincing yourself that it's worth it, not getting paid mm -hmm. for it, hiring a team, doing the dirty work. And mm -hmm. I, I think it takes a certain kind of dose of, of crazy. Um, I agree. But you also kinda, gotta be, yeah. you also have to be humble enough to be like, oh, you know, this current version of it sucks. Maybe the idea is great. This current version of it sucks. But sometimes people aren't even willing to hear that and they just be like, this is awesome. This is awesome. The the kind of, uh, you know, Venn diagram of, of brilliant and, and low ego is extremely rare, but I think pretty lethal. Um, yeah. And not only brilliant and low ego, but confident and low ego. Confident that I know long term mm. this thing is going to work and I have a great idea, but humble enough, low ego enough to be able to think that like, hey, this current version of this is not good enough. I love it. I love it. Um, it's rare. 
this is an interesting one. On email strategy, agencies tend to be campaign focused. Um, I believe a better strategy is investing in intricate flows that act as disguised campaigns and optimizing with A-B tests. Campaigns saved only for announcement. Would love to hear your unbiased thoughts. Um, I think that this is a fascinating question because almost it's every... A, yeah. a fascinating question because it's it's preluded with, you know, this is how I think about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating question also because a certain part of it is definitely true, right? Like agencies optimize towards um, short-term growth to keep people involved. And I think it's, it's kind of this weird and, and I'm, I'm treading on, on, uh, on, a you know, on, on water walking here, on but ice. yeah, walking on thin ice just because there's a lot of, uh, a lot of sensitive agency people um, that might drag me on Twitter, but there, there is a component here, both from both sides, right? Where, Brands have to buy into this agency idea that you won't see results in two weeks and kind of look at what the agency has done with other brands and do the diligence to find out that this is a great agency and won't just copy and paste the same email campaigns that they're doing for somebody else. So I think that's, and once you're Mm -hmm. in, like give these people more than a week to prove the results. But to be honest, if you're on, on a brand side, um, if you can create kind of flawless uh, you know, flawless flows that do the work for you while you're sleeping versus launching and relaunching campaigns every week. That's a not, that's a no brainer. And 90% of the people on your list are seeing your flows. Most of them don't see these random one-off campaigns. Um, yeah, I disagree. What you think? I disagree. It's not one or the other. I think you're leaving money on the table if you don't do both. You know, I, I, I have no experience working with email agencies because I don't know why anyone would ever outsource it to an agency. I think email should absolutely be done by the brand, but I don't, I don't understand why it's not one of the, other, you know, why it has to be one or the other. I think you should have flows that are centered around your customer journey and how you want people to interact with your brand at, at certain touch points and, you know, when they, when they fall off different abandonment stuff and overcoming objections. And then there are limitations to that. You should absolutely have campaigns based on seasonal events, product launches, whatever products you want to move and whatnot. The reality is, is as marketers, we, we overthink this stuff and we're way too biased. People have no fucking idea for the most part that they're in a flow or a campaign. They have no idea, especially if you do it properly. I don't think people should know. If you say, hey, you left something behind, yes, they might know, but people really don't know. So I think, it, I think it's a silly question. It sounds like you're very much agreeing with the question, even, so, even though you're saying you're disagreeing. Um, because he's it basically you're saying for announcements, events, anything that's one off, right? That, is that what you're saying? But it's not just announcements and, uh, and events. It's like even if you're just like, hey, like I just want to send this. I just think you're leaving money on the table. Yeah. If yeah. you don't have flow set up, but you're also leaving money on the table if you don't send campaigns because there are limitations to to flows as well. So I think you should absolutely be sending both. And I think campaigns should definitely be for one off stuff. But even not, even mm-hmm. when you don't have launches, you have to come up with ideas and stuff that you want to be communicating to your customers about. And that can be around content, that can be around products, that can be about features, benefits, social proof, whatever it is. Um, it doesn't just have to be launches, but you just have to come up with that stuff. I think you need you need an equal focus on both. Yeah, no, I hear that completely. I think it's it's you know, in, in chatting with people in the in the space, I guess more in the food and beverage mm-hmm. universe. I've heard that most people that have kind of signed up with an agency, it can take like six months to kind of have you and I don't want to like get into this Twitter Twitter drama um, about how long it should take to get flow set up. But it's it's increasingly clear that from an agency side, it takes longer to set up flows. And I think it's 
it's kind of, to me, you know, flows are, are equally important. I think it's, it's baseline, right? It's like having those basic, per, you know, basic flows set up. So when customers come in, they have the ability to learn about your brand, not just get sold every Wednesday when you sell it, when you send out your campaign, um, is super important. And in general, I think the idea of like, you know, testing campaigns and then kind of moving them onto flows sometimes works, you know, sometimes it works quite well. Um, obviously it has to make sense, um, you know, for every customer going through this journey at every point in time of your company. So I think it's just, I, I mean, broadly, I don't think there's any like massive strategy and hack to unlock incredible email growth and it takes a lot of work and, and iteration. Yeah. So you need both. You agree? You yeah. agree? I agree. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I think you need both. I think in general, the, the point that I'm taking is that it's very often for brands and it's just like an agency versus brand. I think it's very often for everyone on the email side of the poll to put a priority on campaigns because it's quick money, right? You send out an email, you make yeah. money. Um, flows take long, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. You're right. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of patience. Um, yeah. It can take 90 I, days. I totally right? I, yeah, yeah. I, no, you're right. You're right. I totally agree. Yeah. If you've got to focus on both Jackson's question, um, he's got a few, but we can, we can take the first two. Um, how's your team set up for collaboration between growth, retention, design, and dev? Um, I think that's, it's probably that's a, a good question. question. It's a good yeah. I, I like answering that stuff because you know, what I'm learning more and more is a lot of success with, a marketing organization and hitting your numbers really comes down to the operational side of it and making sure that, you know, you're efficient with people's time so you can actually get a lot of high quality output and and mm-hmm. things are again looking on brand and stuff like that. So I think that's super important and and having a team work together. And I think we're we're fortunate that we have a team that actually really enjoys working together and and does a really good job of that. Um, so I think, I think it's super important. I mean, I think it's super important that people know what their roles are and that could always be, you know, more clear that, that they know how they should be communicating with each other, especially, you know, we're, we're hybrid between in-person and remote. We have some people that come in office every day, some people that come once a week, some people that come, you know, once a quarter. So I think that's super important to make sure everybody has all the information and we're, we're always trying to do better of that. You know, you should need to understand what goes in Slack, what doesn't go in Slack, what's in a meeting, what goes in Asana. Uh, we, you know, we hired a project manager several months ago and that's probably been one of the most important things that, that we've I was done. I say that. Yeah. I think that's been absolutely amazing. And I, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know what, what we did without having a project manager. So I think, I think that's super important. Um, and, and just, yeah, having, having the right tools where you can quickly uh, comment and collaborate on things. So, you know, Figma has been amazing, you know, so instead of having to do it in Photoshop and then kind of pull it out in the cloud, Eli's a, a fan of their competitor, Ligma, but uh, I, I'm pretty partial to, to Figma, um, you know, using Asana and being able to collaborate there. And I think it's kind of a combination of, of doing that async stuff, but also knowing when to get on the phone and be like, hey, this would be so much simpler if we just had a 10, five-minute conversation. So, yeah, I don't know. To me, it's just the right the right tools, the right workflow, and just making sure everybody knows how you want them com- communicating. What are your thoughts? I have, I have zero to add. I think you, you hit you hit both nails on the head. Um, well, I guess all three. I, I like Ligma over Figma. Um, <laughs> <laughs> having, having a project manager completely changed our lives um work lives i think it's been it's it's been a game changer every single time in my career that i thought wait why do you need a project manager and then mm-hmm. they come in and you're like how did we do it before them i think it's just like literally taking a project from beginning from from beginning to end and kind of like hey 
copies do or hey design is do. I mean, we turned around a direct mail project in like a week. Um Crushed it. with our and our designer was out of town, right? It's like we did this and without our project manager, I mean we would have mm-hmm. failed. There's miserably. so many things. There are like yeah. so many things. Especially for me personally, I think other people feel on team it's just like you just feel like it's like a set of insurance and you don't have to store all these dates in your head and you just It'll get happen. them out and Asana yeah. and like they know. Um, it was actually, by the way, I don't know if you remember, it was one of the first things you told me your first day when we went out to dinner. You were like, we need a project manager. Was like one yeah, of your first I mean, I saw this at Olipop where we were just kind of cruising and somebody mentioned like, oh, we're going to bring on a project manager. And I was like, we don't need one. And then um, we brought somebody on who came from Rothy's, uh, Lauren, and she was just a lifesaver, like a complete game changer. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, like you don't need that stress of like, wait, when's it due? Because you know they'll tag you or they'll flag you if it is due. Um, complete game changer. And we've, we've, we've lucked out big time here with our, with, uh, with Genevieve, but I mean, regardless, it's, yeah, it's that plus making sure that you're putting in the right place. Like sometimes you'll get a project update in Slack and you're like, I know I'll never see this again, mm-hmm. uh, versus Asana versus Figma versus, um, Ligma, Ligma versus phone calls. And I've got, so. I've gotten pretty like annoying about it where it's like, if somebody puts something in Slack, especially like we had a new employee who did a creative request in Slack the other day. And I was like, let's do this in Asana. I like just want to like nip it in the bud and like, yes, it's probably, probably annoying. And I feel like all corporate about it, but it's like, Hey, like this is the way we do it. Cause it just makes it so much easier and just get everything out of Slack, get it out of email. That would be kind of one of my main points of feedback. Yeah. Uh, second question. What questions do you ask internally when thinking through cohorting and, and LTV analysis? Um, I mean, this is like literally one of our biggest priorities now. Um, we, absolutely abuse peel um we drive them crazy to pull all the data that we need um and i mean for and i I can answer this and then you can hop in but i think so much of this is understanding that it's not looking at like customers that came in january if they stay till february it's looking at cohorts understanding like how long they've actually been around um versus just like the basic shopify cohorting of like 45 percent of your customers in january were repeat that means nothing so much of this has to do with the product they came in on, the time. Yeah, right? so, like so somebody... that, that would be a question. That was my first one. I'm thinking, yeah. what is the best product to bring people into our world on? Yeah, yeah. I think it's that's probably where you'd start. And for us, it's obviously like either our best sellers, like a Miracle Balm or a mascara. I mean, ideally, in our case, we learned after doing a ton of research that it's these kits, right? Mm-hmm. It's like if somebody gets in on a mascara and a Miracle mm-hmm. Balm, that's a dynamic duo. Mm-hmm. Like there's a really strong chance they come back and, and spend a ton of money over a long period of time. Um, what questions do we ask internally? What are the, yeah, definitely. What is, what is the best customer journey? What is the ideal customer journey? What products do we want people coming in on? What, what traffic sources do we want people coming mm-hmm. in on? What offers, if any, do we want people coming in on? When is the best time to be able to make upsell recommendations mm-hmm you know, based on kind of the, you know, recency and frequency type stuff, you know, and just looking at when people are most likely to increase their value. Um, what is the best time of year to be mm-hmm. aggressive with acquisition, understanding cohorts by by month? But I think, yeah, breaking it down by everything you can, absolutely by product, by channel, mm-hmm. uh, by discount, and by month were, were probably the, the few that come to mind. Do you have any others? No, I think those those four um discounting is even i mean we don't discount but even if you do um i mean actually especially if you do we've seen at every brand i've ever worked with i've seen like an incredible uh 
differentiation in LTV based on a discount, not just the discount amount or the offer amount, but also like at Olipop, we did a bunch of influencer stuff and certain influencers, their fan base had a much more integrated relationship with them and they had double the, the LTV, like literally double. So it's super important to look at source and discount. Um, and obviously, like you said, product and, and we'll look you know. at, uh, at, uh, you know, uh, post-purchase surveys. I mean, I don't know if you would consider those cohorts or not. They're segments, I guess that's a cohort. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, what we found is people who self-identify and say that they follow us on social, their average order value is like quite a bit higher than people who don't. So that's something interesting wow. where it's like, all right, how do we how do we then make sure that we're getting as many people to follow us on social as we can? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the that's the important piece. Right. It's like once you learn all that, like there, I've seen two kinds of people, people that are obsessed with data and people that love doing things. It's rare to find somebody that loves the data analyzation plus the action. And I think when you're in a small startup, it's important to be doing both, like studying the data, but also like, okay, now how do we act on this? So I think Cody's example is perfect as like, if you see people that are following you on social have an increased AOV or an increased LTV, how do you get more people to follow you? And then kind of just looping back the other way as to like, okay, if I see people on social have a higher AOV, why is that the case? And how can I educate them more or make them feel more involved even if they're not following me on social? So I think it's thinking both ways about Mm -hmm. that. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, next question, last second to last question before we get to Joanne's. There's been some talk and some debate oh, no. on Twitter about some some recent uh, data reports that have come out. Somebody from Twitter wanted to know our thoughts on it, specifically your thoughts about you know how what's the outlook for e-commerce? Do you believe the accuracy of of that data? What are your thoughts? I mean, I think that it, what I've seen in the data, um, I can't really react to that because I, I don't know the broader headwinds of e-commerce outside of what I hear day to day. Um, what I took from that data is it's comparing what happened last year mm-hmm. to this year. Last year was one of the rosiest years of e-commerce where you yeah. spend a dollar, you get three. This year is going to be a little tougher. People have a ton of inventory. People have overspent. People are kind of making decisions this year based on last year. It's a completely different environment. And I think that whether or not it's maybe a little scarier than it should be, um, we don't need to be 40 year old males spending our weekend fighting about the accuracy. We can say that it's not great news regardless, right? Yeah. Like the, the news is not great. And whether it's like a dollar off or $10 off, the realistic situation here is that people are struggling. People have a ton of inventory and can't sell it because their ads aren't working and because everything else isn't working. And it's imperative to kind of like buckle down and and I think Sean from from Ridge said this but it's like it's imperative to buckle down and get back to basics like why should people buy from you sell it mm. at a trade show like you got to figure out the basics of like is your product good enough um before worrying about like the data that somebody pre- released on on twitter. a thread on twitter yeah. oh gosh yeah i think you want want my opinion <laughs> i'd love your opinion <laughs> so i i definitely agree i think there's definitely like a lot of growth for growth's sake happening where people are trying to just compare to last year comps and enforcing growth that, you know, the, uh, you know, compromise of profitability, it seems like. I think there's probably a lot of, you know, to go back to the theme of forecasting and over forecasting, where now there's a lot of discount this time of year to try to get that off the books. And sometimes maybe that's even happening at a loss because, you know, mm-hmm. that's better than holding onto the inventory. But I also really, uh, when I look at that data, I really question the accuracy of it. It doesn't match what I've seen from other data sets. And I think other people are starting to share theirs. 
Um, so I would really just, I wouldn't freak out personally because I don't, I don't uh, believe the accuracy of that data. I definitely have concerns about it. I believe a lot of people on Twitter had concerns about it. I don't remember the exact specifics, but like AOV was down by such a considerable amount while a lot of other numbers were better. Um, there were actually uh, several ones that were that were better. The only one that was really, really bad was average order value, and it just doesn't make sense to me. So I think it's just if something doesn't pass a sniff test, I would just be be pretty skeptical of it. Um, that, yeah, that would be my take. I mean, I agree. Everything is everything is hard. It's hard for everybody. You know, definitely don't force growth, but you know, yeah, just not sure about that data. I mean, I think we're just, yeah, we're operating this year. We should be operating this year differently than last year. So any outrageous kind of like, oh, I'll spend into my LTV or any kind of crazy shit mm-hmm. that you've done or hired because like you'll need it next year. It, it's going to be harder to raise money in this environment. It'll be harder to get customers. If we are heading into a recession, your $99 bar of chocolate might be a lot harder to sell. Um, mm-hmm. But if you kind of scale back and think about the the, the basics, um, creating a great experience, and a great brand, and a, a place where people want to work, I think the the strong ones will will prevail. And, and strong ones is not like raising a zillion dollars and IPOing mm-hmm. and kind of. I, I I think that. I think it'll be it'll be tougher than last year, but I, I don't know if it means that all brands are going to shut down and and we're mm-hmm. entering. You know, we're all going to move into caves, but yeah. All right, final final question from the one we've all been other waiting than for. Joanne Coffee, who we got to have back on the show soon, by the way. Yep, we do. It would be cool if you guys pulled back the curtain on what it was like to scale rapidly, like we did. Is it true that email is the reason we scaled so quickly? <laughs> that was her question. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> how how we got there and everything from hiring to logistics to marketing. What did you learn? What mistakes did you make? And what would you have done differently, if anything? That's a loaded question. I feel like there were a lot of questions in there. So what what are your thoughts? I mean, I've been here for, I don't know, nine months. So I, I don't know that I'm fully uh, able to answer all the interesting What What month is that? You come in in March? Beginning of March, yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, so you came in kind of as we already hit our first boom. I think I was like number 15 or 17. Um, I mean, this is like the hardest, in my opinion, this is the hardest going from like 10 to 50 is the hardest employee jump because you're going from a tiny mom and pop shop to, to a real company. And I think that it's almost impossible to not make mistakes, but I think, I think intent is very important. I think building a company like this, you really need to be intentional with people you bring in and the growth plans you have. And I think that the number one thing that I've seen in terms of like, what we've done that that went well is I think everyone has the best intent. Um, it's very rare to see that. So I think that's that's mm-hmm. probably from a from a more lofty. And I, I know Cody can talk more like the hiring and logistics and the marketing from a more lofty perspective. From what I've seen in career in my career, the reason why Jones Road is is doing so incredibly well is because we all know that we're not perfect and we can do better on a lot of things. But I think what we've done well is had the right intentions and everyone just really gives a shit about one another and wants to do things that are fun and exciting. And yeah, and we want to sling mascara. So I think it's just like intentionality is so important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, if we pulled about the curtain, so essentially we went viral in January that essentially tripled our business. 
tons of problems that come from that. This was before Eli was on the team, so we had no director of CX. Uh, CX was a huge nightmare. Essentially, anything operational was a huge nightmare. Um, I think I saw, I don't know if you know, like, Steph Smith, who, like, used to work at The Hustle. She tweeted mm-hmm. one time, was like, um, something about CX being, like, like too many CX tickets being, like, the, the, the sign of product market fit. And I was like, That's totally funny. like she worded it way better than that. But like, yeah. so definitely CX was a huge issue, like to the point where we were delivering a pretty shitty customer experience with shade matching with not, with not, you know, responding to people. Again, this was before Eli was in. Um, and, and then same thing on the, you know, the inventory perspective, we were running out of things pretty quickly. Um, and I think what, what happened in both scenarios, and this is probably when we didn't have, you know, the current team that we do have now is we overreacted. And I think a lot of times people will overreact when it's the first time in the scenario. And we, you know, happen to have a pretty young and, and inexperienced team. And so we overordered on inventory and we overhired on CX. Again, this is before Eli, so I'm not saying he he did anything. I think he actually came in here and kind of calmed things down and 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 you know made sure that we had the appropriate team and, and gave them proper training. But I but I see that I think people, humans are really bad at not, and you look at it in the stock market all the time, not overreacting. Um, things are probably never as good as you think. And when you think they're, and I even got, I definitely thought that it was going to last forever and things were just going to be amazing and things are never going to, are as great as I feel. And when things are great, we think it's going to last forever. But also when things are really bad and down, we think that that's the new normal and they're never as bad. So I think that's something that's very difficult to do. But mm. continue, you know, continually, that's something I, I try to remind myself of. Um, but definitely, you you have to ramp up your team and ramp up the team super quickly. And and it's you know we're we're a much different, much better, but much different business as we were you know this time last year. But I think as you grow, there are other challenges. You know, there's people that are gonna, you know, you're gonna outgrow people. Some people are gonna outgrow you. Some people are you know not. It's just they were perfect for one stage of your business, but they're not necessarily perfect for the next stage of their business so i think you know when you grow really fast unfortunately you're probably going to have higher turnover um but fortunately you know so you i think that's something where you have to focus really hard on keeping the culture uh and and keeping morale up if if that happens um but you also fortunately are going to be able to add some amazing people as as you grow you'll be able to add people so um you just i think have to be careful of of the culture and and making sure that, you know, people are still happy and not burnt out, obviously, because when you're growing fast, people are having to do a lot more. And sometimes you're not able to hire quickly enough. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's uh, it's a it's a weird time, right? It's like going from from a team of 15 to 50. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to get every hire correct. Um mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to properly forecast for everything. It's almost impossible to have a perfectly engaged marketing team. I think we read LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter and we read everyone's highlights and we're like, you went from 15 to 75 and everything's going smooth, but obviously nobody's posting Mm -hmm. the shit show. Um, And it feels like that's yeah, kind of what I said before is like the most important thing is people giving each other grace and being like, we're all doing this for the first time. Like I've never been at a business that grew at this pace. Um, and we're lean, we're a lean team. Mm -hmm. We're scrappy. We're hiring where we need to hire, but also like you can't hire the best person in 20 minutes, right? It takes time. Um, I think that's always the key is like just 
I, I learned this, um, my last boss, David always used to say like, never assume malicious intent. And I think that's mm -hmm. been like such a game changer for me is to like, if you think they're trying to fuck you, they might be, but don't assume that, um, you know, try to try to assume that it's just people kind of going through it and, and working together. But I think mm -hmm. that's, that's been my biggest win so far is just like more communication and open-minded yeah. communication and, and operating with like, let's try to loop everyone in and make the right decisions. And like you said, not overreact. So yeah. Yeah. The last so question is the most important one. I was about to, oh, uh, well, hold on. No, we let, let's actually answer this one right before it. So let's both then it's a three part question kind of off of that. So what, what, what did you learn? So pick one thing you learned, one mistake you made and what, what's one thing you would have done differently and let's both answer it. You go first. Um, one thing I've learned is that doubling tickets doesn't mean doubling headcount. Um, good, good. The second question, what did I, what mistakes did I make? Um, I think towards the beginning, it was very, very difficult for me to let people go who weren't a great fit for our team. And it ended up impacting the team adversely. And I regret that it took me so long to make the decision I had to make. Um, what would I have done differently, if anything? I think just giving myself more time to kind of catch up. I jumped in with like an hour of training and I was just like all up in everything. Um, and I don't think that's normal. And I think it, I was kind of like slowly digesting information as those weeks came by, but I was like operating, like I should have been here for a year. Um, yeah. and I think that's a very, very ridiculous thing to do. <laughs> so I would, I would take things slowly, more slowly. I would take things more slowly. Um, if I did it again. Um, but I, I don't, I can't say it's like a regret. I think I would just do it differently. I hear you. I hear you. Um, I learned this is super specific, but kind of one that jumps out of mind is you can't double budget on ads without doubling creative production. I think mm -hmm. that's one that, you know, that I, I learned the hard way uh, and it actually took multiple times. And again, not doubling budget on ads, but mm -hmm. ramping up and kind of finding new spend, at, you know, the same efficiency levels and you think it's going to hold and all is good for a little bit. And then eventually it just, it just, I don't want to say it crashes, but it definitely kind of takes a hit and, you know, you just burn through creative so much faster. And so what I've learned is we really had to ramp up the output of creative, how many ads we're able to get out and test as our, our spend goes up. So, you know, in terms of what I would do differently about that specifically, um, really, it really all comes down to forecasting for us. And a lot of this growth has, was not planned. It was obviously wanted, but not necessarily expected. And I think if we can expect our growth a little bit better and, and forecast for it, then we can kind of take a look and understanding what operational resources we're going to need in the future, whether that's headcount, whether that's CX, you know, obviously whether that's inventory, but even if it comes down to kind of creative production, understanding art, we're spending, let's just throw up random numbers, 30K a day right now, and we're trying to get to 60. We're doing 20 ads a week right now. We're going to need 40. Do we have the editors we need? Do we have the bandwidth for that? Um, that's probably been the the biggest thing I would do differently and I'm going to try to do differently going forward. I love it. Um, final question from Joanne. Are we having pizza and ranch at the holiday party? If you hit your goals for November, <laughs> I will, I was about to say something. I was about to say I would like gulp a whole thing of ranch, but that's gross. <laughs> yeah, Joanne loves ranch on pizza. So yes, I will have ranch. If you hit your goals for November, I will have ranch on pizza just for you, Joanne. Wait, can we sound off in the, in the, 
in the comments or like on Twitter if uh, pizza with ranch is is normal or yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's do a poll on Twitter. Do a poll. I'm gonna drop a poll when this releases. Um, for anyone that makes till the end, I just want to know if it's like disrespectful and gross or if it's like a thing that people actually do. Okay. I think it's fucking gross. <laughs> Joanne, you're the best, but I think it's gross. Dude, actually, no, can I tell you something? I, I'm totally just kidding. It's probably really good. I used to eat uh, chicken bacon ranch pizza, so it's it's probably really good. But I think she does I, it on like all types of pizza. I know. I think the chick, chicken with ranch kind of energy makes more sense than just like a, a straight margarita with ranch. But I mean, I, I'm not going to knock it fully until I try it. So Let's try it. Let's do it. Okay. Done. All right. We done? We're done. See See you guys next week. week.